The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome into the Otzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Welcome to your Monday edition of the podcast. And if you're on YouTube, welcome to the Monday visual version. Uh, make sure to like and subscribe. Make sure to like the podcast's feed as well. Um, we're going to be running through five questions uh, on Oregon athletics, football, recruiting, basketball, you name it. We've got it all on today's podcast. So let's, Eric, let's dive right into this one. Yeah, we're going to start with some spring football stuff, which is literally tomorrow. We're starting again. So I, I think I can speak for all three of us that Getting back out in the practice turps would be would be nice. It was a fun break, but um, I'm excited, excited to see more than just a couple of days. So yes, um, first one from at Vonte zero six zero two. What are three things other than the quarterback competition you are most looking forward to seeing when spring ball resumes Tuesday? Hashtag Otsnotables. Thanks, Susan. The hashtag. I think basically everybody whose question we are using used the hashtag. Uh, Vont, I don't know if you saw this or not, but this I actually wrote a story uh, titled Three Storylines I'll Be Keeping an Eye on When Spring Workouts Resume. So I have uh, prepared pretty maybe <laughs> you have you You've got yeah, some answers. Than the others here. Um, but I'll just run through these really quick. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned quarterback competition. One of the things I wrote was it was, and I by the way, I recommend go ahead and take a look at this on Duck Territory. I'm gonna summarize briefly, but I have more thoughts on all of these up on the site. But you know not just specifically at quarterback, but in general, kind of if we get any can glean any information on who's taken a step up on the competition at their um, respective position battles. I think, you know, there, I, I mentioned five that I was following most closely quarterback being number one, but also running back linebacker safety and corner are other ones. I'm kind of curious on uh, how well do the early enrollees fit? Anthony Jones was here earlier. Um, we've been able to confirm that wide receiver justice low will be here as will linebackers, Devin Jackson, Harrison Taggart, um, and defensive back Jaleel Florence, offensive lineman uh, Michael Wooten will also be here. So um, there'll be about half a dozen uh, early enrollees. How well do they fit? This will be our first time seeing several of them. Um, and then lastly, and it's the big question I think that we've kind of all have had here is kind of what do these offenses and defenses look like? Uh, completely new staffs. I think we can expect some changes. So um, some kind of clarity on some of that. So I, I think position battles, how the early guys look, and then and again, whatever we can glean from offensive and defensive kind of fits. I looked at it as this is an opportunity where there's going to be some newcomers that that join the team. Um, you ran through some of them. Transfers, uh, Whittington and Coda, um, running back and a receiver will also be on roster. Um, and so for me, 
at least like the first half of spring ball is going to be just how quickly can these guys assimilate themselves into the program and put themselves in a position? Because in particular, Whittington and Coda are joining position groups where there's not a lot of bodies. Uh, running back where Whittington plays from Western Kentucky has two scholarship guys. Coda receiver has seven. Um, I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that both could arrive and this weekend, this past weekend, have their first practice on Tuesday. And by the end of the month on April 25th, when they conclude spring football, a day, uh, a practice after the spring game, we should note, both guys are in the starting lineup. I think that's, I don't, I'm not predicting that, but I don't think that's out of the realm of possibilities. I think, uh, obviously, I think both both you guys have gone through some pretty obvious ones. Uh, I'll, I'll go the road less traveled. Uh, I'm extremely excited to get a new roster. Um, <laughs> there you go. If you guys don't know, uh, so at the start of spring camp, every, you know, the whole media gathers around. They're all like kids in the candy store when they get the new roster. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, maybe we'll have heights and weights updated this time. I doubt it. But I'm optimistic, you know, and we'll get to see all the new jersey numbers for all the newcomers. Um, so that's one of the things. Uh, competition, of course, is going to be the second. Um, although we don't really get to watch anything where there's going to be a competition. So, you know, we'll do our best. But competitions, sure, why not? I'll throw those in there. Um, and, you know, lastly, I, I guess I'm just excited to be back on the football field. Um, yeah. You know, I, I wish I could give you guys more in depth of an answer, but because of what we're able to watch and what we're really not able to watch, um, the, the the sky high expectations of watching like real competition and really getting a vibe or or what the defense or what the offense will look like probably isn't going to happen. And the, the the first time we see what the offense or defense looks like or the competitions, it's probably going to be when everybody else sees it at the spring game on April 23rd at 1 p.m. So that's all. I, I you know like I, I'm I'm just super excited to get back out there, but to have like three obvious uh, you know, things I'm looking forward to. I'm just, the number one is getting back out there. One other thing we should note is, is we will get an opportunity to speak with coach assistant coaches who we've never really met or at least had interviews with in which person think, too. in person. Yeah. Well, that'll be nice to kind of, I think that that'll probably, if we're being honest, and I think I wrote this in my three storyline story, competition, what the offense looks like, defense looks like, we're probably going to glean more from those interviews than what we actually see at practice is my yeah. guess. So mm -hmm. I, I think that that's maybe – I didn't include that on my initial thing here, but just getting an opportunity to talk to – and also players, which we haven't been – we haven't spoken to any players since, I think, Alamo Bowl stuff, um, or maybe a couple right after Dan was hired. I think we talked to Alex Forsyth. That might have been the only one um, on the record. So um, I, I think that's, that's probably another thing worth noting is – um, starting later this week, we're going to get an opportunity to speak with some assistant coaches and some of the players and kind of get a, more of a vibe and a feel for how things are going other than what we've seen uh, at practice. So keep keeping a lookout for that because, I, again, I don't know how guarded – I mean, they might all be as guarded as Dan is with some of this information, and we might not feel like we get a ton. But at the end of the day, we're going to have more information probably by the end of this week than, than we certainly had to start it. All right, second one here uh, – I think Matt kind of touched on this, but I think it's a good conversation here from at Brandon Carr. Do you think Noah Whittington will compete for RB2 since he brings so much explosiveness and experience? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I mean, I, I think in theory he's competing for RB1. 
I yeah. think all the running backs on the roster are competing for RB1. Um, do I think he ultimately wins a job? No, I, I feel pretty comfortable with Byron Cardwell being the guy, but will he be in competition? Sure. And frankly, he is the most experienced. Um, I think Sean Dollars is a year older, but Winnington has more yards and I mean, all the stats, he has the upper hand collectively from an experience perspective than anyone else on the roster. Um, obviously, Western Kentucky isn't Oregon, and, and I think you can probably argue experience by Byron Cardwell this past season maybe supersedes some of what you would get out of Western Kentucky. But Whittington will have a shot, and I think it's it was really important to get him, you know, kind of th- that commitment dealt with before they resumed for the second half of spring because – and I say second half, it's like what the second 83% of spring. I mean, it's, it's basically, it's basically all of spring. And so getting him on campus, that will be significant. And I know Matt, you, you, you think he could really have a shot at, I, mean, I think RB two feels like ultimately where he probably ends up I would agree. lining, but like he'll come, he'll show up expecting to compete for the starting job when he should. Yeah. I, I, I don't, think like i said just a minute ago i don't i don't think he wins the number one job i think that's byron cardwell but if you told me hey byron cardwell didn't really have a good spring didn't have a good fall and whittington was just even keel and is the opening day starter it would be a surprise but it wouldn't be like oh my gosh i had no idea this was this was even possible um i mean he's productive at western kentucky he's not ultra productive but he put up decent numbers. Um, he, he showed good good flashes when he got touches. That was a big issue for him. So I, I think I agree with you. The, the number two spot is probably the most likely landing spot for him. Um, Sean Dollars coming off injury, don't know what he's going to be able to do. Maybe he's all the way back, and maybe he regains that 2019 form that we saw in the Rose Bowl game when he looked pretty good um, in a very short spurt of time. Um, or maybe he's a guy that, that had a really major knee injury, and it's a type of deal where typically you, you see a guy come back in his first year, there's some good, there's some bad, and then that second year after injury, he's a lot better. Um, what happens with Seven McGee? Uh, you know, is, is How much of, of a role is he going to have at running back after sticking at receiver after the Alamo Bowl, uh, an opening spring ball at receiver? So um, I, I think Noah is in a position where – Almost worst case scenario, he's the third back. Most likely scenario, he's number two. And best case is he's the starter. Uh, well, I don't necessarily think it's worst case that he would be number three, just because you have Sean Dollars and Byron Cardwell ahead of him. I think those are that's the most likely option, in my opinion, is that he's number three. I understand Sean Dollars is coming off of an injury, um, but you know that's. I, I think he injured it last time during during fall camp or like in the summer, like right before the season started. So he's had plenty of time to rehab. There was a lot of talk about him being able to come back and participate in last season um, from Mario Cristobal. Obviously, that never happened. Um, what the reason is behind that, we'll never really know. Um, but, you know, he's a guy who theoretically should be at, at or near like really game ready type. So with him and Cardwell, I think those are your two, your one and two solidified backs. And Whittington is just an extremely good third option. And he's a much needed option too, because the depth of the running back group is really, really, really thin. I don't think, I don't think a lot of people understand this, but, but, you know, it looks like seven McGee is going to be a full-time slot wide receiver. I don't think, and maybe he comes out of the backfield every once in a while, like 
Dillingham said, or, uh, or Lanning said, excuse me, a long time ago where, you know, they'll, they'll look to experiment out of, with, with people out of the backfield. Maybe that's his role and that's his package for slip plays, slip plays or screen plays, something like that. But to me, Whittington seems like a guy who's going to come in here with, with some talent and provide depth and versatility. I think his skill set is a little different than what Byron Carwell and Sean Dollars brings to the table. So I don't think it's worst case scenario that he's number three. I think that's a pretty good scenario. I think he has the capability of being a number two back. And I think he'd be, you know, I don't think Oregon would really miss a beat if a Sean Dollars goes down with injury. I think if Byron Cardwell goes down with injury, I think that's a whole different story. But, you know, for him to come in and solidify that second or third running back position, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. Um, I like his tape. Like Matt said, he was productive at Western Kentucky, but not overly productive. You know, he was really good against Appalachian State. In their bowl game, I think he had like 150 yards rushing uh, with like an 86-yard touchdown, something crazy like that. I've seen seen the video. He's got, you know, he's explosive, he's fast, he's got versatility. Um, I think they'll, I think Oregon should try to, will, or will try to optimize him in the passing game too. Didn't have a whole lot of that at Western Kentucky, surprisingly, with their offense. But yeah, I could see that becoming a factor. Um, I just think it's really good overall to end this like that. Oregon has another scholarship running back in the backfield um because you know three weeks ago whenever we last we were at spring practice it was cardwell and dollars and aaron smith so at least having whittington is going to help there one couple thoughts here just dollars was uh injured i believe last spring so it's been like almost a full year um and yeah. i think he's got to be close to 100 percent. as matt said though like you never know with the injuries he could lose a step you might you know where his productivity is that we really don't know we watched him in drills he looked fine physically upper, upper body wise he looked almost probably more impressive than any of the guys out there from a running back perspective I maybe feel, aaron aaron smith maybe has the edge by the way yeah. good <laughs> i was but gonna aaron say i feel like he's looked physically good since november of this past season like we would see him walking around and in not in pads or anything, but in like the, the the practice jerseys, and it'd be like, all right, well, we're gonna see some some Sean Dollars this year. But yeah, I think physically he looks he he looks the part. So, and my just my parting thoughts on running back before we jump into the I know we're gonna take a break and jump into another segment. I I, I think I, I look at it like this. I think Cardwell's ninety percent gonna be the starter. I think it's Whittington and Dollars fighting for that second spot. And I think the real wild card is what happens with Jordan James. He won't be here for spring. Mm -hmm. He's enrolling in the summer. If he shows up on campus ready to really challenge for that two or three spot, that would be awesome for this program because really they need I mean, they're, they're gonna need four players capable mm -hmm. of competing. And right now you have three guys and then some walk ons. And I think Aaron Smith is probably better than your average walk on, but at the same time, he's not a scholarship guy. And and that is you know, typically a bit of a drop off. It doesn't mean he can't become one. And I probably, again, I think Smith's pretty capable, at least on a physical perspective of carrying the ball. I don't think he's anywhere near the capabilities of the other guys, but you'd love to have four or five capable running backs by the time fall comes around. And I think I feel pretty optimistic about what you'll get from James. We just won't have any answers on that this spring. All right. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got three more questions to dive into here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Passion, drive, and patience. 
What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. All right, welcome back to the Autzen Audible's podcast. Uh, two questions and three more to go on this mailbag edition. Yeah, we're going to open the second segment with a question from at Joey Bonin 33 When Ty made his commitment to Oregon, the rest of the recruiting class seemed to fall into place pretty fast. With Nico out of focus, sorry, out and focus shifting to Rashada, and he writes in parentheses, expecting a visit for the spring game. When do we start to worry about this next class coming together? Hashtag Um, Otsnotables. You're not the only one, Joey, uh, communicating these concerns. I'll tell you that the uh, message board on Deck Territory has had several posts like this in the last week or two. Um, And I think it's, there's some viability to having concerns. You know, I think mm-hmm. we might have addressed this a little bit recently. I mean, you think about pr- previous classes, usually by the time you're getting into the month of April, which is, you know, a couple of days away, you have more than one verbal commitment. And the current verbal commitment is a son of an assistant coach in the 2023 class. Um, and so I think there's reason to be somewhat concerned, um, but I'm not losing my mind here. It's a brand new coaching staff that's just getting situated. And as you said, a lot of this is, and, and it's, it's, become a trend the last four or five years in particular when you get your quarterback the class sort of starts to fall you know come together a little bit and I think if Oregon does land hypothetically a Jaden Rashada or whoever it is um, if that happens by let's say the end of April you're going to be fine Um, you know and I I would expect honestly by the end of this through the spring game which is going to be a big recruiting event we've already got a lot of big time players saying they'll be here if, if I, I, here's what I would say, I would say you start to worry after the spring game, like maybe a week after. If you get to like mid-May and it's still one guy, I think that would be a little bit concerning. Again, I'm yeah. still not saying the sky is falling. I'd become a little concerned. Um, but again, there's a bunch of stuff that's upcoming for Oregon to kind of sell itself, and I, I expect that they'll end the end, you know, end the month of April with a lot more success on the trail than that they open it with. Typically. 
we're almost at that period of time now where the recruiting commitments kind of start falling in in a flurry. Um, spring football, once guys start landing in for an unofficial visits and checking out practice, spring game, um, a lot of that stuff, uh, when all that is going on, that's typically when you see commitments. And so like you, Eric, I'm not too concerned right now. Um, it is March 28th and spring game is just over a month, a little under a month away now. Um, if Oregon a couple weeks after that spring game on the 23rd, if Oregon's in the middle of May and they don't, and they only have one commit, like you said, then yeah, now you start really sitting here saying what's going on. Why is it not um, clicking? What, what is happening? But if they've gotten a couple commitments, yeah, it, it, it's right on, on cue, right on where they should be. Um, and we could see a flurry where five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys are, have, have committed to this class by mid-May. Um, I think from an Oregon perspective, they probably want to have half the class or maybe a third of the class locked in probably by about June so that you know they don't have to focus so much time on a wide net of, of potential players to fit their their holes. Um, and it also could be a case of maybe they're still trying to sort out how much room they have. Because remember, it's not just last year's seniors that had that option of, of an extra year of eligibility. It, it's every player on that team. And, and so maybe they're still doing some math and doing some science and getting the calculators out to figure out how much room they've got for this class. Yeah, I have to share the same sentiment. I think on paper, I could see why people could be worried um, when you have other schools or top schools in the country that, you know, Oregon fans like to compare themselves to who have multiple commitments at this time in the class of 2023. Um, to me, I still feel like this is all a relationship thing yep. where the staff is only four and, a, four and a half months old here in Oregon. Um, they've had a lot to deal with first off, you know, and they still have to make the transition from their old school to their new school out here in Eugene. Um, and so that's a, that's just an average, like everyday human part of this perspective of moving your, your kids and your family across the country from wherever they are, or, you know, whatever, down I-5 if you're Junior Adams. But um, I think that's a, a, an important part in all of this. But with, with the relationship perspective, um, you know, this isn't the same staff that was a part of, this program, you know, just last year with Mario Cristobal being here for a couple of years and already having connections along the West Coast with players from you know his time just as an, an OC here to then being the head coach. Um, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer than that. And Dan Lanning and company, I'm, and I'm sure as, as people have seen across Twitter, um, he's already done a tremendous job of getting players on campus. And I think that's the first step into getting recruits getting them on campus, getting them to talk to their position coaches, getting them to experience the HDC and Autzen Stadium and the photo shoots and all that good stuff, you know, that's going to play off in the long run. And, you know, last year's class for, for Cristobal, it also didn't start too fast. I remember there was a lot of the same narrative of kind of being concerned about how many recruits were piling in until the spring game and until spring camp really got into fruition. And I think we're coming upon that. Um, and, and even still, you know, going into May, June, July, 
that's when Oregon last year got a lot of their top prospects. It was before the high school football season began in 2020, 2021, 2022. I don't know. <laughs> it's a weird one out here. But so I, I think it's it's on paper, I understand why people could be nervous or skeptical of what's going on. But, you know, recruiting is always fluid. It's seemingly fast-paced, but at the end of the day, there are thousands of recruits to go through. And I think at the end of the day, Oregon will be in great shape no matter what. Is there anything else we want to add on the recruiting front before we jump to the next question? I, I, I feel like that's kind of covers it. I, I, I would just say, you know, I, I know there's a tendency to be really reactionary. Like I would give the staff a little time. There's always, as we've kind of established, there's always a little bit of this. Plus I, I do think, you know, the, the, I think the NIL stuff maybe complicates it slightly. I, I don't want to yeah. step, but I mean, like just the fact that maybe you have to now kind of coordinate some of that. Maybe kids are a little slower, but at the same time, I look around the country and that hasn't slowed down other recruits from committing either. So um, I, I, I do think just like, let's, let's get through the end of, through the, through the end of spring football. And I think we'll have a better idea of where things stand. Um, so, all right. Fourth one here from at James Fretz. Um, and credit to Jared for finding this one. I didn't see this in the initial uh, group of questions. This is an interesting one. He goes, whoa, why has Kayvon fallen so far in the draft? Hashtag, that's an audible. And he has um, screen grabbed, I think the most ESPN, is that the most recent ESPN mock draft, Jared? Or is that CBS? I can't, I, I can't differentiate. Doesn't I think it was an ESPN. And it's not, I don't know if it's the most recent, but for that week it was. Okay. And and this is this this mock draft has Kayvon going ninth, um, which as I think we all know, not too long ago it was really a Kayvon's in the discussion for maybe the number one overall pick, and if yeah. it's not the number one, it's certainly a top five pick. Um, I I listened to Todd McShay, who by the way, this could be a Todd McShay mock draft we're looking at. I did listen to him have a conversation with Ryan Rosillo probably about a week ago talking specifically about Thibodeau. And so I'll just kind of relay some of what it was said there, I guess, because ultimately like I, I'm not an NFL draft analyst and I don't have connections with NFL front offices, I hate to say, but, um, but what was said basically was that Thibodeau promised to do all the things at the combine and didn't, all he did was do the 40 and then didn't do the rest of the things. And that was a little bit, I guess, concerning for some folks out there. Um, some of, I guess, some of what was said in some of the, interview process wasn't the best um, from what McShay could gather in terms of it sounded like Kim Thibodeau was focusing on his personal brand more than maybe on the team co component. Again, I, this is what was sort of said on this podcast I listened to. Um, and then the other thing was Todd McShay was saying, and I, I don't know, I'm curious on your guys' take on this because this feels different than my recollection, but that, that maybe there were questions about the consistency of the motor of Kayvon Thibodeau, of, of did he play every down as hard as possible? Um, and statistically, you look at his numbers, they didn't jump out this last year. I will also point out, I think he played hurt basically the entire season, and he missed yeah. a lot of games and quarters because of that. So um, it, it sounds like there are concerns almost more about like effort and some of the kind of the character concerns, which sort of surprises me because, again, my interactions with him are nothing but positive. Um, and everything we heard was nothing but positive. So um, it was always interesting to hear and kind of see all this stuff get um, litigated by the national draft media, if you will, once we've kind of spent three or four years interacting with these individuals. And, and sometimes it runs completely contrary to what we've experienced. I thought 
similar things. I felt similarly, honestly, about Justin Herbert a couple of years ago and kind of the way he was being painted. Um, the Penny Sewell concerns were kind of similar um, and I didn't quite get them. So um, at the end of the day, both those guys had really have had really good starts to their NFL career. There's no reason that Thibodeau can't, even if he's not a top three, top five draft pick, which kind of seems to be the trend of where people are projecting right now. Um, I'll take maybe a glass half full approach to this um, because sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when we see players that have these kind of weird falls um, and some negative press put out, it's kind of done on purpose by maybe one or two teams because they want him uh, to fall. They don't want, a, or they don't want you know teams in the five, six, and seven range to consider him, uh, and maybe that sixth pick is like this is our guy, and they've told KT, hey, don't work out. We're gonna pick you at six. You, you know, there's you're good to go. We are locked in. When you're available at six, we're gonna pick you. Just don't don't work out. Everything's set. And so sometimes you see that type of stuff happen. Um, it doesn't happen every year, but it certainly happens where a guy will drop and it's because he's got a promise. Or sometimes you see guys, uh, you know, will will participate in some aspects of a combine or they, they'll only do their combine um, at, at their school. Um, and it's because they've got some kind of indicator from one or two or three teams that if they're available at a certain spot, they're going to pick them. Um, is that the case here? I don't know. I, I do think he has um, a reputation for taking plays off, which I don't necessarily 100% agree with. Um, like Eric said, he did play hurt most of the season. Um, but you also kind of look at it and say, what is KT's best move? Um, as a defensive end pass rusher? Is it a swim move or is he just so much more athletic and stronger than the college offensive lineman that he just kind of blew by those guys? I, I don't know that answer. Um, and maybe that's what's separating himself from being a top five pick to potentially being a top 10 pick. So I'm a huge NFL mock draft guy. That's one of my favorite things. Any mock drafts I'm into. So this, this question was originally proposed to us back on March 9th. That was after the Russell Wilson to Denver trade. Um, and so there's been recent mock drafts since. Um, I've since wrote one from about a week ago on March 22nd, post-free agency with Kayvon Thibodeau going seventh to the New York Jets, or Giants, excuse me, ninth to the Seahawks, and CBS Sports had Thibodeau fourth to the New York Jets. So maybe he lands on one of the two New York teams. However, the, the lack of effort on the line narrative that has been surrounding Kayvon Thibodeau is one that you commonly see on interior defensive and exterior defensive line and offensive line prospects. Um, I think it's kind of it's blown up, I think, most times. Obviously, there are cases where really tremendous players – don't play every every down, but you know, getting down into the into the line and playing every down at your very hardest is something that's really really hard to do. That's a very physically taxing and emotionally taxing position on both sides of the line. 
And I'm not trying to give Thibodeau an excuse here, but from when we saw him play, you know, he was he was 100 percent. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of people expected his numbers to be better at Oregon um, just because of his you know star status coming in, his highlight plays as a freshman. And I think that's warranted to a point. But, you know, when when you're Oregon uh, and you're you're playing them as a team, the last thing you want to do is let him get unleashed. And so every team, every single game would try to do something to eliminate his impact on a game. So and that that kind of plays into the narrative that he takes plays off is because, well, he wasn't as impactful as he should have been. Well, no team really let him. You know, we saw UCLA that game. UCLA didn't do a damn thing different in their playbook and their strategy to try to eliminate Kayvon Thibodeau. They said, look, we think our offense is going to be good enough to go after him. We're going to have enough time. And that was the game that he wrecked. But you saw what Utah did. You saw what Cal tried to do. It didn't work because they just didn't have the athletes. Um, You saw what Washington State did, which was go right at him, which was very interesting. But eventually, you know, Thibodeau kind of turned a corner in the second half of that game and really disrupted. So I think that Thibodeau's still going to be somebody who's around a top six prospect. Um, The testing at the Combine, I listened to that same podcast that Eric did with with Todd McShay. Todd McShay is a little lower on Thibodeau, Thibodeau than Mel Kuyper Jr., which I think is interesting because of the, those are basically the two head um, mock draft people in, in, in the NFL world. Um, There's a recent mock draft today from Austin Gale of PFF that had Thibodeau going second overall. So, you know, it's it's mock draft season. This is, this is the thing. You could see him drop as low as 11. You could see him go as high as two or one. He's plus 2,500 on FanDuel to be the top overall pick. I still don't expect him to be the top overall pick. It's probably Aiden Hutchinson. But, you know, I would still expect him to be a top six, top seven pick just because of his pure talent. And I want to go off something that Matt said real quick um, about, like, well, is his best move a swim move or is he so athletic? Well, that's the perk of Kayvon Thibodeau as a prospect is because in college he was so athletic, also – so strong he doesn't i know he he looks very well put together but he's deceptively a really strong player and he would throw offensive linemen uh in in any of his moves with a bull rush or a power rush and so if you're an nfl team and you see Kayvon Thibodeau, who is this unbelievable athlete who tested really well at the combine and the 40 and the bench press obviously didn't run anything else which was a surprise as eric mentioned but you look at him from an NFL, a GM perspective, a defensive line coach perspective, and the things that Kayvon Thibodeau is missing, you can teach. You, know, yep. you can't teach height. You can't teach natural athleticism. The things he's missing are things that a defensive line coach in the NFL can teach. You saw Thibodeau get precipitously better at Oregon, too, with his finesse moves. So I, I still think he's going to be a top six, top seven pick. Um, I just think – Sort of like Matt said, where maybe it's a smokescreen that teams are putting out. But I just think that the narrative that he's not an every down, you know, 100% effort guy is kind of blown over because that's how a lot of defensive linemen have been looked at in the past. NFL.com's Daniel Jeremiah actually, while we were on topic of this very thing, released a new um, ranking of the top prospects. This isn't a mock draft. It's just – the best big board yeah and 
he dropped him three spots to 10th. He noted he's got elite length and explosiveness, uh, his ability to play in multiple spots along the defensive line, um, showed off his burst and, and excels from an inside arm to stab, create space, or close and finish. Also mentioned, like Jared said, his bull rush. Um, but he said he's also got some ankle tightness, which is really weird. I've never heard of that phrase, but okay. Um, isn't an elite bender? We've heard that one. Uh, bender as in flexibility, um, if, if you're wondering. Uh, and then says, closes it up by saying, has the speed to close from the backside, but his effort is spotty. Overall, Thibodeau doesn't have ideal flexibility, but his blend of speed and power should translate successfully at the next level. Um, gets another person from another outlet that gives you another perspective of Kayvon Thibodeau. I, I think with like Jared, I, I think some of this is overblown. Um, like he said, he got double teamed often. And when he didn't like UCLA, watch that game and tell me he's not a top five pick. Yeah, absolutely. And we should note, Kayvon will have an opportunity to take part in Oregon's uh, Pro Day on April 1st. That's this Friday. The draft is April 28th through the 30th. So there's going to be a lot more conversations about these same exact things because that's what you do this time of year. And yeah. I, I'm going to be really curious to see where he goes and then also see what the fit is for him because I, I do think he's going to be a productive NFL player. Um, but some of where, I mean, how productive in, in part is largely dependent upon where he lands. You know, I think mm -hmm. not to go off on another topic, but is what's Justin Herbert's career like if he ended up in Miami as opposed to the Chargers? You know, I mean, there's these kind yeah. of conversations you think about hypothetically. I, I think it'd be pretty good, man. I think I think no, Herb is one of those quarterbacks. I'm not saying it's going to be, be bad. There. That's not implication. I'm just saying I'm not saying it's going to be bad. I'm just saying how do his first two years go? Different coaching staff, different different right. game plan, different offensive weapons. Um, is he being talked about in the same discussion, or is a team built the same way? Um, that, that that that's just what it comes down to. It'd be interesting to see a lot of it's fit. I mean, because I think if you're Thibodeau, you'd probably want to be an. I think you're going to be an outside linebacker more than likely in most schemes. Um, so. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe a team takes him, likes him in a different role. I mean, a lot of this is fit related. So it's going to be interesting to see. And again, we're going to have, I think, probably a lot more questions like this over the next three, four weeks leading up to the draft. And a lot of this so. is going to be kind of silly, weird stuff where it's going to be another thing every other day of now it's a new thing. Or maybe it's going to be, well, actually, we disagree about a certain thing that was said before because it gets crazy when you get into mock season. Um we're going to finish it up with a non-football question. This one's from at Nash underscore Duckaneer. What is your single favorite slash most memorable game from the men's basketball team since Dayton Altman has become head coach? And he says, for me, it was the Elite Eight game in 2017 when the Ducks beat Kansas and Jordan Bell had, quote, a million blocks against the Jayhawks. I think it was eight, um, but close enough. Nearly a million. <laughs> eight in, in one game feels like a million. Um, I'll start and just say, like, honestly, for me, it was probably one of the last games I attended, not as a reporter. And I was had pretty good seats for my parents for the Oregon UCLA game where Dylan Brooks hit the, the buzzer beater and Matthew Knight Arena against yeah. you know, over Lonzo um, in what I think was UCLA's first loss of the season. That was also this same 2017 um, final elite eight year or uh, no final four year. But uh I that was such a fun moment to be a part of and to not also in part just because I, I wasn't covering the game. I was with, um, you know, friends and stuff. And we just had a, a blast being a part of that. 
Um, that'll always stand out to me. I think, you know, if, if I'm being honest, that was one of my favorite Oregon sports teams, just period, that I've Absolutely. been a fan of or, or covered. Um, I thought that was just a really fantastic blend of talent. And again, there may be a, a, a non-torn ACL away or one defensive rebound off a free throw away. And they maybe are playing my Zags for the national championship. And then I would have had quite the uh, conundrum of, of, of watching that game <laughs> and where my rooting interest lies. So, but for me, that UCLA game will always, I think, stand out as one of my, I just not even basketball, but just in terms of Oregon sporting events, one of my favorites. I was at the Kansas game um, covering it. So I would say that one, but I don't think we need to go much into that one. Um, I think one that really stood out to me was the year before against Duke in the Sweet 16. Um, it was a tra- kind of a, a transitional period for the men where they were the number one seed. And it was a year in which you still looked at it as if, like, hey, they, they, there was a ton of expectations to win. Um if they had lost that game, obviously we, everyone would be disappointed. But it was still kind of a moment where it's like, hey, we're happy to be in the Sweet 16. This isn't the expectations on a year-in, year-out basis for this program. And you're playing Duke. You know, basically the standard for college basketball the last 30, 40 years. And not only did they win, they blew them out. And the, the – it was a it was an instance where I remember like going into that game thinking like wow I think Oregon's going to win I expect Oregon to win but this is going to be tough um, this is Duke this game should be uh, a close one or maybe Oregon maybe pulls away very late but they were better wire to wire almost and it was very evident early on that Oregon was the better team um, and and Kobe was at that game. Um, there, there were, it was just a big time environment. It's played at, I think the Honda center in Anaheim. Um, that one to me was, was pretty cool. Just, you never really expected Oregon to blow out Duke, um, in the NCAA tournament when I was a kid, when I was in college or in high school or even after. Um, and yet it happened. So, uh, I'll cheat and, and go with Eric and not do a game that I covered. Um, it was uh, my fresh, freshman year at Oregon, that 2017 Oregon team, um, when they played Arizona uh, at home. Um, mm. I almost mentioned that. It was really stupid because it was at like a 3 p.m. tip or a noon tip. I can't remember, but the, the timing was dumb. It should have been later in the day because game day went somebody somewhere else. Um Regardless, you know, the game starts uh, the student section, which I was in, in, I don't know, one of the first couple rows, uh, launched some powder onto the court. Uh, Dan Altman was not very happy, um, <laughs> but it seemed to be a precursor for the raining down of three-pointers from Tyler Dorsey and Casey Benson. Um, just an unbelievably fun game. Uh, Oregon won by what felt like 50 um, they hit what felt like what Nash Duckaneer said, but a million threes, um, you know, highlight dunks, highlight blocks. That's what made that team so much damn fun. Um, so that was, that was a great game. Still remember that still will occasionally watch the highlights from that game because it was so fun. Um, but for a game that I covered, um, I'm going to go to the women's program. 
the first game that I covered alone for uh, DuckTerritory.com was uh, the yeah. <laughs> was uh, the Ducks versus Team USA, where they beat <laughs> Team USA, and uh, Eric was in the crowd and 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 texting me some some helpfulness <laughs> during the game. So, but that was a hell of a lot of fun too because there was you know twelve thousand people packed in Matthew Knight. Um, they kind of did the improbable. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was since 1997. That was the first time a collegiate team had beat the USA women's basketball team. Um, just a whole lot of fun. Sabrina just going toe to toe with some of the best players in the world um, and coming out victorious. So for me, that was e easily probably the best game that I've ever covered. For so basketball. just a couple thoughts and I'm going to toss these your way. The first off, I'll just say, uh, uh, I, I didn't think Oregon had a chance to beat Team USA, so it was the, the rare <laughs> I thing where I was going to go sit in the crowd with my parents and my girlfriend at the time and uh, and watch it. And then at midway through the third quarter, I'm like, "Wait, are they going to win?" And like now, now I feel kind of lazy for not having covered this, uh, and they did, and it was an exhibition. And Jared did a great job covering it, but it was that was that was a really funny day. Um, and I'm happy you brought that one up, Jared. I. Okay, you, you mentioned it felt like a million threes against Arizona. By the way, that's a great pick as well, because that was another game I was thinking of. Do you guys remember how many it was? How many threes they hit in that um, game? Like 21. 16. It was 16, Jared. It was 16 for 25, though. Yeah, it was stupid. <laughs> there was one where Dorsey hit one, and Sean Miller literally just threw his hands up and was just like, what are, you, like, what are we supposed to do? They're hitting everything. So here, yeah. here's how that went down. Uh, Dorsey was six for six. That's pretty good. Um, Dylan Brooks, four for seven. Casey Benson, three for five. Chris Boucher, two for three. And Peyton Pritchard was one for three. Uh, Jordan Bell, by the way, Jordan Bell also took one and missed it. Um, I'm going to guess that's one of like three career three-point shots he took. And he probably just took it because everybody else was making it at that point. <laughs> um, one game I wanted to know, and we should know that that team – the 16-17 team, probably for a lot of the younger fans, for a lot of people like us, um, Eric and I in our 30s, Jared is in his 20s, um, and honestly, probably a lot of people that are a little bit older than us too, this team probably has a lot of these games, um, or this core group has uh, a lot of the games that you're going to bring up. Um and it was a it was a year in which it really felt different for Oregon basketball. That year, they sold out the first game of the season at home. It, it, it was first game of the season in general. It was against Army. I remember that they had twelve thousand five hundred people for an opening day game against Army, and that just kind of set the tone for the entire year um, from a fan perspective, from an investments perspective, from the fan base. I remember going to Oregon State. I think it was the last game of the regular season. In Corvallis in March, it was hot. The Beavers were terrible. And I want to say Gil was like 50-50, Duck fan to Oregon State fan. And that was a moment where I, like, we all know, and we've we've talked about it at length before, of just how well the fan base travels for football games. But that was one where a year in which, like, that was new. And that was unexpected. And, and, I think when you look at the team next season for basketball and the years to come under Dana Altman, like the standard's going to be, can you get to the talent level and the chemistry level and the fan connection of 16, 17 season? Because 
so many aspects of that year, whether it's the players, the games, the moments, or the fan interactions, it was all special. Yeah, yeah, I, I was I was gonna say that. Yeah, I could have picked four or five from that season. Just as yeah. I mean, that that was a fan for me. Um, also, like quick little hitters, um, being able to see Bull Bull play in person was a lot of fun. Um, yep. Although his career only lasted nine games at Oregon, just a very special talent. Um, and then uh, uh, the whole the the whole final Sabrina year, that was yeah. Ruthie and Satsu, that was just so much fun. That was just an unbelievable basketball team. Every game was um, really n- never closely contested, but <laughs> that was that was part of the fun. Was that this team was so so balanced and so well orchestrated. Um, and at the same time, on the other side, the men's team with Peyton Pritchard's final year, that was another really good team. That was a really another really good Dana Altman program. Um, they, I don't know, they they felt like they were they weren't as good as their ranking, but every game they went out there and they played as hard as they could, and they somehow always were were in a game or they ended up pulling it off or you know, winning by ten or fifteen when it seemed like they were going to get. Um, and into a close battle. Um, both of those programs, you know, sadly didn't really have the chance to, com- or didn't at all, not sorta, they didn't at all have the chance to compete for for an NCAA championship for the women's team and for the men's to try to make a late run into the tournament. Um, but both of those programs, that was just so much fun to cover my, my, my senior year at Oregon. Um, just, yeah, those good moments. And hopefully that uh, this, this basketball year coming up is a little bit better. How spoiled were we for like a three-year stretch? Because the men, 15, 16, made the Elite Eight as the number one seed. 16, 17, they made the final four. Um, and then obviously 17, 18, they didn't make the tournament. But then 18, 19, they made it back to the Sweet 16. And then 19, 20, they – like Jared said, didn't get to play in the tournament, but like they were a two or a three seed, depending on what happened in Vegas. They won the Pac-12 mm-hmm. championship. They had an all-American guard on their roster. And then the women's side, 16-17, they, they made the, the the Elite Eight and they played UConn. And then 17-18, uh, again, they made the Elite Eight. Uh, and then 18-19, they made um, the Final Four and – the following year, 1920, they brought everybody back. And like Jared said, we didn't get to see how they were going to finish out. But I think everyone kind of assumed they were the odds-on favorite. Like, I don't know. It's been a couple years now since those teams have played. And I think now everyone associated with those teams is gone. Um, And looking back on it now, I don't know if we're going to see – I feel confident we'll see the men and we'll see the women get back to that elite level. I don't know if we'll see them both do it at the exact same time. That's pretty rare. Yeah. And you know what it just makes me think of is, is how much fun those seasons were and how different this spring was in, because, yeah. because of the fact that neither, I mean, because it wasn't just, as you said, Matt, it, it was fun that those kind of runs coincided to a certain degree or, almost kind of the momentum of the men's run carried the women's almost like into the women's run of being really dominant and being national contenders. And now to have both not be good in one year, or just both kind of underwhelm at least to a certain degree. Um, I, 
there's certainly potential for both programs to get back to it soon, but I'm with you, Matt. It feels like there's no sure thing that they both do it at the same time. And I think you just have to kind of appreciate those seasons of, of greatness. And I know I do, and um, you hope it happens, but it's tough. And it's, it's tough to make runs in tournaments too. I will say as somebody who's a Gonzaga alum, where you've had some really, really good regular seasons and it hasn't always worked out in the postseason. end of, end of rant. I'll be sad now. <laughs> it hasn't always worked out in the postseason, or has never worked out in the postseason. Well, they've gotten a couple national championships there, which are pretty fun, but they haven't been able to finish it. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. And so by tournaments are really tough to make a run. I mean, even the even the big boy programs have a hard time getting there consistently. I mean, when's the last time Kentucky made a run? You know, and Duke yeah. is Duke is Duke is probably oh. the favorite now, but Duke has had its own kind of tough run of four to five, six seasons of of having a hard time really pushing for a championship. It's hard, and um, it was kind of, it was wild to have a run of five years there where Oregon men's or women's one of them was at least in the general discussion going into the the second weekend. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was a year where or a time where. Maybe they weren't the favorite, but when you read a story on CBS or on 24-7 Sports or ESPN or Sporting News about these are the six best teams to chances to win the tournament, Oregon was in it. You know, like you had a good chance for men or the women, the, the men, you know, or the men or the women, they were going to be included in that group. So it's interesting. It's fun to look back on, and hopefully uh, we can see – both programs kind of revive themselves and speaks to the level of expectations have changed where we're talking disappointment for an NIT 21 season for the men and sweet 16 or first round exit for the, for the women um, where it's dubbed a bad year. And that just shows you how far the programs have come. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the odds and audibles podcast. Uh, spring football will be back. We'll be back with our next episode discussing what happens there and the biggest takeaways from what we saw and what we learned after speaking with head coach Dan Lanning. Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You ready? Go. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hang on! It's off the charts spectacular. Go, go, go! Tom Cruise has outdone himself. The world's coming after you. Stay out of my way. Prepare for one of the best action movies ever made. This is getting exciting. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.